What's going on, guys? And thank you so much for tuning in today. I've got Hayden Pritchard or Pritchard? Pritchard, yeah. Pritchard. Oh, okay. I got it the first time. All right. And uh, we're going to be talking about tapering for competition. So um, to everyone who is a regular listener, welcome back. And if you aren't a regular listener, thank you so much for jumping in. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, just make sure you smash the subscribe button and um, also turn on notifications so that you know every time we drop a new episode, which is every single week. So Hayden, thanks so much for jumping on, man. I'm really excited to, to have you here. Can you give a little bit of an overview of who you are and some of the research you've, uh, you've been working on for people who maybe aren't familiar with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Hayden Pritchard, I guess um, Dr. Hayden Pritchard, if we're going to be accurate in terms of the academic sense there. Um, so my sort of research background, um, I completed my PhD in 2017, I think it was now that I finished that up um, through AUT or Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand here. So studied under um, Professor Michael McGuigan and we basically did a series of studies that investigated, I guess you could call it tapering, but also I guess it is peaking as well. Um, so tapering or peaking for competition and specific to the sport um, of powerlifting, we use that as our as our model. So that's kind of, I guess, the background of the research side. And I've also had other interests sort of in things like stimulants, ammonia inhalants. Um, so a lot of those themes, I guess, are, are based around the sport of powerlifting, which was what I was doing competitively um, up until, I guess, the first year of my PhD studies. So um, that kind of spurred that interest and is what I guess led me to the series of, of studies and the body of work, I guess, that I've been involved in. That's awesome. So just kind of on a, on a bit of a side note, then what was some of the, uh, what were some of the findings on utilizing ammonia, you know, pre-lift? Um, so one of the studies or the study that we did with that was with um, another group of researchers at Mass University, um, Dr. Matthew Barnes and, um, Blake Perry and Blake um, his PhD actually involved a lot of stuff with um, cerebrovascular so it was quite a cool little study that we did looking at brain blood flow essentially um, after taking the ammonia and the performance effects though which were obviously most most of interest to me because there were some changes with the brain blood flow stuff um, well with the blood flow stuff in terms of blood pressure and things but um I was more interested in the application of it, obviously, whereas they were more interested in the physiology or um, Blake was more interested in the physiology. And we essentially saw no real difference with the ammonia. Like you could grasp at some straws with it, but in reality, <laughs> there was nothing really there. Um, and it's one of those ones. I, I wrote a bit of a review on that, on the literature as well, because there's, there's more than just our work. Um, on ammonia and I, um, that's up on the stronger by science website i believe the ammonia article so um, if you want to dive into that um more than more than happy to do that as well or, or you got you know other people can find that link just by pretty much if you search ammonia inhalants um and stronger by science you got to find the full breakdown which is a bit of a it's a mini lit review um on that topic really that's awesome so i i don't typically use ammonia i don't like it but that's generally just because personally i tend to idle at like 90 percent anxiety so yeah. <laughs> you know i'll, I'll usually just, just pushes be, you over the edge yeah exactly <laughs> so i'll usually just be really calm kind of like chatting watching youtube videos like seem very disengaged during a competition but that's just because i yeah. need to do that because then like 
the moment I stop, it's immediately it's, you know, you're, you're right in there. But so I never really found any benefits. Some people really like it, but I, I never, I, I don't know if I was skeptical. Um, I guess I was always curious, but it's interesting that, that, that you kind of found uh, not a very strong association between that and any sort of like ergogenic effects. Um, so I'll have to check that. I don't think I've see, I read the uh, the article yet. Yeah, um, I mean, it's just on Stronger by Science. Just Google right. the ammonia inhalants yeah. and you'll find it. There's not a heap of literature um, yeah. on the topic. I think I actually saw one pop through on like a um, notification thing I'm subscribed to. I haven't got around to reading that. My my reading of other research this last sort of year um, since stopping lecturing has been a little bit poor, if I do say so myself. <laughs> um but, you know, I still have the best intentions. So I get those notifications and think, oh, yeah, that'd be great to read that. And then uh, it's, it's about whether I actually get around to it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So to kind of dive right into it, can you give a little bit more of an operational definition of uh, tapering and peaking just so people kind of make sh- people understand specifically what it is that we're talking about? And then also maybe, you know, explain whether or not there is any differentiation between a taper versus a deload. Yep, yep, definitely. So if we think about tapering, essentially what we're looking at is um, a drop in our training load, like a reduction in our training load prior to a competition. And the idea or prior to to any point in time that you might want to test. So you could taper before a test day in the gym or something like that if if you are really, you know, wanting to get good or wanting to try and maximize those results. So the idea is with general training, there comes fatigue. Um, and some of you may be aware of the fitness fatigue model, but essentially what the fitness fatigue model is, I, I like to use that to give us the like overview of what a taper is. And so the fitness fatigue model, essentially when we have a stimulus and that could be an individual training session, a group of training sessions, however you want to think of that, but that stimulus essentially has two, um, after effects from the training. So the first after effect after effect and the one we're probably most interested in is the fitness after effect and that one takes a little while to actually build so if you think of you know training adaptations those don't occur instantly we don't finish the session and suddenly we're stronger right we have to recover and that takes some sort of um, period of time so a fitness after effect occurs following training as your body adapts to that training stress so this could be um, you know, building more muscle, uh, bigger muscle fibers to produce more force, potentially um, enabling a better ability to actually activate the musculature, um, those sorts of things that might change following um, a strength training session. And they take time. So a fitness after effect, after effect takes a little bit of time to build. Whereas when we think of a fatigue after effect, those tend to onset a little bit quicker. So the fatigue after effect is the second um, after effect from a training bout or a training stimulus. And these will tend to hit a little bit harder or a little bit quicker. I should probably say they're rather than harder. Um, but we kind of get a bigger bump um, to our fatigue to start. So if you think of your ability to perform better than your previous training session or your previous baseline, it'd be the combination of these two effects. So if we try to train again quite quickly um, after a session, you know, maybe depending on the person, could be a matter of hours or a day or something like that the fatigue after effect would be greater than the fitness after effect. And so what that means is the person's performance would actually be reduced. Whereas if we were to wait a couple more days, we might see a little bit of supercompensation as that fatigue starts to dissipate, but those fitness effects um, still remain. And so the fitness after effects kind of, they hang around a little bit longer, which is kind of the main takeaway there. And that's how it links back to tapering, right? Because the idea with the taper is that we want to try and reduce as much of that fatigue as we can, but hold on 
um, to the fitness after effect. And so that basically, if we think of that, that fitness after effects comes from a training session with our tapering, we do want to be doing some sort of training that kind of aids us in holding on to that fitness after effect. All right. So a taper essentially is a reduction in training volume um, in order to try and help us achieve peak performance on a certain date. Right. Um, and there's different ways we can taper. We could taper um, linearly, which would basically be where each training session we reduce, say, say we're doing five sets, right? A linear taper might see you go five sets of three to four sets of three to three sets of three or whatever that rep number is. So it's essentially a gradual reduction that happens by the same amount each time. Um, and then we might have um, basically exponential tapers where we have bigger reductions um, and we might have step tapers where essentially you might go, if we're talking about that five set example, you might just go from five sets to two sets and then maintain that all the way into the competition. So that's a step taper. Whereas exponential, yeah, we might have bigger drops in the number of sets at the start and then more, you know, so we might go from five to three to two rather than five, four, three, two. And sorry if that's not the best example, but hopefully that helps to give a little bit of explanation about that taper. Um, and if we think about the peaking, that could kind of be any number of things. So one of the things that we investigated with our research was um, training cessation. So essentially you just train as you normally were, whatever that normal training volume um, and intensity was, right up until some point before the meet where you just stop training. Um, so that would be one way that you might peak, right? There's no gradual reduction in your training volume or anything like that. You literally just stop and turn up for the competition. Um, so that would probably be the biggest differentiator between the peak um, and the taper, right? But both are trying to do the same thing. A taper is still a form of peaking, right? Because it still allows you to achieve optimal performance or the intention is that it allows you to achieve um, optimal performance. Yeah, and I really like that distinction you made between the peak and the taper because a lot of the times too, um, at least when I'm kind of chatting with my athletes, they'll there, there's a lot of kind of dogma depending on where yeah. people got their start in powerlifting where they're like, oh, I need to be like, so th this is a really, really big one. Like, I mean, for me, I know it's important and I've noticed that for the, for the vast majority of my athletes, intensity has to remain high um, throughout the entire taper. And, but th there's this idea that I just haven't necessarily seen a really strong correlation to, and this is just me, but where people really want to take their, their openers and their second and like go super, super heavy, where I haven't really seen that benefit their performance necessarily. And I find it's maybe a little bit more psychological, which admittedly, you know, if they find it's, it's better for them, then sure. But I haven't really seen any additional benefit to lifting super, super heavyweights, you know, reasonably close to competition. Instead, I've seen things be very effective where, you know, they'll hit like a single at an eight yeah. and then they go in and that'll be their opener, but then they'll have so much more left in the gas tank. And it seems for me anyway, sometimes a little bit unnecessary to kind of exhaust them two, three, four weeks out by taking their second attempts or maybe like something a little bit higher even, which I know some people are really big fan of doing. And then another thing I've seen that's really, really common is um, significant drops in, in volume of like, mm -hmm. or not, not necessarily the volume because, but well, yeah, volume intensity. So like 50% reduction in volume and like a 40% reduction in intensity are things that I've seen pretty routinely, you know, and I know that can vary quite a bit from person to person, but I've generally more modest reductions in volume and then maintaining most of the intensity has been the most effective 
consistently anyways. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of inter-individual differences, but like that's generally what I found to be probably the most effective. Um, and granted, that might change, but most of the athletes that I coach are national level, world level kind of competitors, yeah. right? And so I was wondering, like, what are some of the variables that affect the the structuring of the taper and and peak? Um, so things like, let's say, sex, training status, proximity to competition, like what, what are those variables and how would you maybe implement some of those changes? Just generalize, yeah. generally speaking, anyways. Yeah, so with the um, gender differences there, I, to be honest, I haven't seen any research that's kind of investigated that. So a lot of that would be, I guess, anecdotal stuff that people have talked about with gender. So I probably wouldn't want to comment too much on that. Um, but it is something that obviously... Um, in general would come back to that I guess relative strength level so rather than thinking of it just in um, male female it's probably more important to look at it as what is the person's absolute level of strength or their relative level of strength you know are they lifting um, really really heavy weights or are they lifting lighter weights and you know if you're a novice male you might be lifting really light weights and not even really need a taper so I don't want to kind of generalize too much um, on that aspect but we can probably think the stronger the person, that's going to definitely have an influence on the taper. So if you're a super strong female versus a novice female, or the same with a male, we might see some differences in the tapering strategies um, that need to be applied. And that might come back to as well, um, training status, right? Which is one of the things that you mentioned. So if we think about training status, that kind of will largely dictate the amount of volume someone is handling or often will dictate the amount of volume someone's handling because generally as we've trained um, for a longer period of time, people are going to be more used to training. So they're going to be training with um, higher levels of volume. And that kind of has a, in my mind, like a twofold effect on the taper, because if you train with higher volume, you may be at a point where you're more fatigued, right? Um, but, but likewise, that stimulus that you're used to in training is higher. And so it's kind of like a little bit of a balancing act. And it's something that someone probably wants to try Um try individualize that a little bit, right? Try some bigger drops in the training, like overall training load, you know, sets, reps, whatever you want to view that, whether that's the total training volume um, or some other form of, you know, RPE times by session length, if you're using like a trimp type thing. But generally with our resistance training, we're going to be thinking um, of total training volume and maybe the relative intensity as the other variable there. So if we train with a lot of volume and we're heavily fatigued, Generally, as we go into it, the taper, I'm going to be thinking that that person probably needs um, a bigger drop in total training load, right? If someone's coming into a meet and they're not very fatigued, I might think that actually, you know, by not very fatigued, I mean, they're not feeling beat up. They're not feeling tired. They're not feeling like they've overreached. Um, maybe in that instance, if they don't feel too bad, I might take a smaller reduction in our um, training volume. And when we looked at the literature in our first um review study there were drastic differences in the volume reductions it went from something like 30 to 70 percent so it's not like it's really easy to say right go 50 percent or go 70 yeah. i think a lot of it is should be dictated based on what your athlete has done prior to that point so if they're really beat up and tired they're probably going to need that higher percentage drop in volume if they're not feeling too bad maybe a smaller amount um, of a reduction but maintaining most of the training might be enough that that fatigue dissipates and we can actually realize some of that um, fitness there. Um, in regards to intensity, and this has been probably the most interesting part, I think, of the research, was kind of looking at 
higher or lower intensities for that taper. And you said that yourself with your athletes, you've been doing um, generally keep the intensity quite high. And you mentioned like a one out of eight or somewhere around that type of range. And I think that's probably a pretty wise place um, to start with tapers is keeping things at a level that the lifter can do like, you know, a one at eight shouldn't be maximal <laughs> um, by nature of the fact that an eight means you've got two reps in reserve. Um, you should actually be lifting a weight that is yeah, an, an honest and honest one at eight, not like, Oh, that was an yeah. eight. Oh, your eyeballs kind of exploded. There. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things is like, yeah, a one at eight is very different. If you're doing that one at eight as if, right, I'm doing a heavy, heavy single here. Right. Um, and people will, you know, People know what a one at eight is, and when they do it and they call it an eight, and it's really a nine and a half, ten. Um, it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's a very different thing to what you're talking about. Um, so intensity is really important because, in my mind, and this is a, a completely biased opinion as well, um, I think that, well, I guess it's not that biased, but it is a little bit biased. Just letting you know this is my bias is that intensity is the important bit, right? I think it's the important bit. And why do I think it's the important bit? The sport of powerlifting is about lifting the heaviest weight, right? So what's the most specific stimulus we can have? It's the weight on the bar, right? So that is essentially the true test of performance is how much weight is on the bar. So if we're wanting to maintain fitness, and in this sense, fitness is how much weight are you lifting? We probably want to be lifting a decent amount of load to kind of you know reinforce to the body that this is the thing that I want you to hold on to. Um, even though everything else might be a little bit lower in terms of that training, overall training volume or training load. So I think intensity should be relatively maintained compared to the previous training level. So if your relative intensities and in training maybe were, you know, around 85, 90%, you probably want to be maintaining that. Um, and that doesn't mean we're doing a stack of volume there, right? Because we've just said we're reducing that by somewhere between 30 and 70%. So although the relative intensity or the average relative intensity across that taper, whether that's a week, two weeks, whatever, might be quite high. That doesn't mean every set is high, right? You could still build up to a single at eight or something like that, which might be around that 90% mark. Um, and then you could reduce back to say some doubles at 80%. That's still going to leave you with a relative intensity somewhere around you know, 85% or something like that for the working set. So that's probably one of the things that we need to bear in mind when we say that we're maintaining intensity. It's not talking about you know, every set we do is super heavy. It's meaning that there's an exposure to something relatively heavy um, for that lifter within that tapering period um, so that, you know, the intensity of training doesn't drop way back to something that doesn't resemble the sport. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, actually, because my experience, as I have coached more and more athletes than even just myself, and over the last couple of months, I actually hired my first coach. And... I, I've learned a lot from that, but then also just, I think my bias has shifted a lot from volume over to intensity. Like mm -hmm. I think that initially when I began coaching, I assumed that volume was much more of a driver for strength than it actually was. And I mean, my athletes would get way stronger, but I also think that it might over the long haul come at the cost of longevity, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily as convinced that you need as much volume to drive strength adaptations as, as I previously thought anyways. Like, I guess I'm more surprised that I have athletes now getting away with doing way less than I would have maybe previously prescribed mm. and them getting really good strength gains, but then also them being like just on a regular basis. So like, yeah, I just feel great. 
Like I don't feel beat up. Yeah. I don't feel this when previously, when I prescribed a little bit more volume intensive uh, training, they would get very robust strength gains, but then at the same time, they'd be probably a little bit more beat up. Maybe they would need to deload a little bit more frequently. And uh, actually that kind of brings me to, to another point. Like a lot of the times when people are peaking, there's this kind of like, um, what's, what's the word? Um, almost like anxiety, especially if you're working with mm -hmm. like a new lifter, right? Because you're like, Oh, like how, you know, I really want to make sure I'm doing a great job peaking. But sometimes I think that people also forget that during your deloads intermittently, that's the great time to practice a potential. Like, I know it's not gonna be the exact same, but it's a, it's a good time to practice what a potential tapering strategy might look like. Like how much are you reducing the volume? How much are you reducing the intensity? Are you changing the exercises? What does that pivot strategy look like? And yeah. I, I don't, know that it's going to translate to you know the the exact same thing for your for your taper slash peak but i do think it's going to give you a very very good set of assumptions yeah. you know and and do you have any sort of strategies like that because i know um you were is that you that works with rts yeah yeah, okay. yeah i started with rts earlier this year about february maybe this year so about six months back Awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going through, I'm just kind of finishing up uh, the RTS classroom um, mm. right now. And there is one, well, there's a handful of videos anyways, where they talk about peaking and the various strategies that they kind of have that are, you know, generalizable to some degree, they're kind of templates or whatever. And um, I mean, even just kind of looking at that, you know, do you have any sort of recommendations or potential, not necessarily recommendation, but let's say maybe guidelines on um, how you might utilize a D load to maybe make some inferences on what would be effective for a, a peak and a taper. Yeah, I guess for me that's a hard one because if I think of like a um, like a true deload, like if I'm thinking of the intent of a true deload, I'm kind of thinking the whole point of that, like the strength maintenance aspect of a taper for me during a during an actual deload. Like you know, I'm thinking of a lifter who's beat up and tired and basically just needs some recovery time. Like for me, the deload in that instance would be like, a, okay, right, we need to try and actually completely reduce the training level that you're at in order to allow your body to recover. And as you said, that could look like different exercises. Um, for me, one of the big things there would be in a taper, I might drastically reduce my volume, but not my intensity. If I was like truly deloading you, I'd probably also reduce your intensity, which might mean some of those things you mentioned with the change of exercises so that I actually can't handle um, the same amount of load. So you could think something like tempo work, something like single leg work, things where the weight on the bar basically by the nature of the exercise has to calm down. Um, you know, there's no way to maintain it. Um, or maybe even just time off, <laughs> depending on how beat up that lifter is. But I think it's always good to keep some form of stimulus um, within that session. So... Like then when I think of the pivot, like the idea with the pivot has some of those similar aspects with the recovery side. But one of the things we don't want to sacrifice too much um, is the strength, right? Because if we think of the emerging strategies style of training, essentially what we're doing is exposing the athlete to the same training week or the you know same training microcycle um, with the caveat being that the RPE dictates the load, right? So that allows for some fluctuations in intensity. Um, or total total absolute load. It depends how you define intensity, right? If you define intensity as the RPE, then the intensity doesn't change. If you define intensity as the load on the bar, then maybe um, there are some changes in intensity week to week. But in general, we're keeping the stimulus essentially the same. 
and we we try and build that up to a peak you know depending on how long that takes for the athlete to adapt um, to the training stimulus there and then at the end of that block um, where the athlete has reached their peak or maybe they've started to slightly re- reduce um, the estimated 1rm that's when we'd look to do that pivot right and so we're trying to optimize in that pivot cycle yes the recovery um, from the training and maybe that's as, as you would have seen in those pivot blocks using some different exercises maybe you go from a low bar to a high bar or potentially if you're a conventional lift you might lift sumo during that week right things that are going to limit the load on the bar they still resemble the competition movement to an extent but they take away that real um, I guess monotonous training that is doing the same thing week in um, week out which some people struggle with some people love <laughs> um, so in that instance right I, I sort of feel in my mind that you still wouldn't be able to capture that true um, that true knowledge of what happens during like a taper because again we've changed the exercises we've changed all these things and if we think back to that fitness fatigue model like when I'm thinking of fitness I'm thinking of spe- specificity being an important thing um, so <laughs> I don't really know what I'm trying to say to your question there Daniel but <laughs> But yeah, I, that, that I makes that's sense. Kind of making a, a little bit point. of they, they are that. different. They are different for sure. So yeah, and I'd kind of I'd kind of think in that that what we'd almost be wanting to do is that if we if we're wanting to kind of practice some taper methodologies, I'd more be thinking of setting up like some peaking days, like you know where we're going to go in and we're going to do a three lift session, and maybe we're going to try some of those strategies at the end of a um, training block, and and give it a go like based on what that previous training's been. That would probably Lead, be leading into I'd a deload, correct? Yeah, so prior right, to a deload right. or prior to a pivot, um, whichever sort of training methodology I guess you're subscribing to, um, I'd probably do it at that point. Like if I know roughly it takes the athlete six weeks to peak, maybe I'm going to line something up where I try one of those strategies, whether that be um, simply training right up and taking a few days off. One of the strategies I often like to try um, with lifters in the last week um, of a block, and I've, I probably use this more on myself um, and a few of my, the lifters I've been coaching for a while rather than on others is the deload week would actually be a peaking week really not a deload week but in my mind i sort of think of it as i'm reducing the volume and so the term deload still comes to mind if that athlete was doing say um, four sets or four working sets on their exercises i might reduce that back to one or two sets so that they're still hitting the same um, intensity on those work sets but the volume is greatly reduced. So essentially the in the gym for a shorter period of time, um, the overall training stress is reduced, but the intensity is maintained. And that's worked pretty well um, as a strategy that I've tried. The other option, is, as um, you mentioned with the reactive training systems, is to actually, you essentially, they, um, you essentially just basically count back. If you know that generally it takes the athlete, say six exposures or six weeks um, to peak, we basically just plan that the, peak day or the heavy day falls on that last week where they would normally be um, peaking and then we might have a couple of days off prior to that meet so I guess if we looked at it those two things you've kind of got an example there of a step taper right where we've taken purely just reduced the number of sets and maintained it at a certain level and we've also got an example of a peaking strategy whereby it's just training cessation essentially the stimulus remains the same but we do give the lifter a couple of days to kind of recover um before that session which is you know both of those things are are different peaking strategies and i guess you'd call one of them a step taper and one of them as we said the um, peak 
rather than a, a traditional um, definition of the taper. Right. Yeah, I, I definitely find that even for myself, like I'm, I find that I respond more to uh, kind of preserved volume than with just a very sudden drop, right? Like yeah. leading into leading into the meat. So like if I'm going in and I'm feeling like, oh, okay, you know, I'm not feeling, I feel tired. I feel this, I feel that but my performance is really going up. I find that that's actually for me, the perfect spot to be in. And mm. then just the last couple of days reducing everything. And then I go in and I like blow it out of the water. Yeah. Whereas if I have too long of a, of a taper, it makes a big difference. And so it's really interesting. Like the differences that you see, depending on like the individual size, their experience, all that stuff. Like it, it really is a lot that goes into it. And I don't think you can necessarily, I think you can have a decent idea, but you really do have to sit down and kind of have that conversation with them and, and see what's going to work best. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important thing is individualization of it. Like when we're looking at yeah. the science of it, we are looking at averages and we do see um, quite different responses between, you know, the different theories. Some people might respond well to a approach perhaps where they do reduce the intensity. Right. And it's being, I guess, open enough to your biases that you might be willing to try that. And I think that's one of the things I quite like about the emerging strategies style of training is that you are almost forced to question some of your underlying assumptions. Um, well, you even said it yourself, right? A 30, 30 to 70% reduction in volume is, is <laughs> not, that's not a, that's not a small margin. That's, that's like yeah. huge, right? That's literally like a 200 and what, 230% variance, you know, at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a, like, if I'm looking at, say, say I've got two lifters, I've got a female lifter, um, who's relatively new to training, and I've got a female lifter who's breaking world records. Those are two very different tapering approaches we're wanting to try, right? For the novice female lifter in that example, we might not even really need to reduce anything. We could potentially train right through, right? And the same applies for any novice, is that if you're new to this thing, you're gaining strength basically from session to session um, anyway. So why would I go and potentially risk um, taking away the stimulus that's helping you. Right? I might just basically train that lifter as per normal, take a couple of days off before test day, you know, get them to focus a bit um, on maybe their diet that week or their sleep, those sorts of things that you can control and can make a psychological difference as well, not just necessarily a, phys a physiological. But if you're suddenly paying attention and think, I need to up this or I need to sleep more here, those things will probably make a psychological difference for that lifter to come in and feel a bit fresher anyway. Um, whereas if I have a, you know, world record breaking female lifter, maybe I do need to reduce things a little bit more because they probably are in general, um, handling a little bit more training stress just because they're used to it. Right. So in that instance, I might go closer towards, uh, maybe not the full 70% because that's quite a big reduction, um, or depending on how long you do it. Um, but it might be at least 50% type thing, you know, for that lifter to try and really allow them that time to recover from potentially quite hard training. So we really, yeah, that's a, one of the big things is that training experience and that strength level. It's really important um, to consider that with your lifters. And that's how you can try some different approaches. It gives you starting points, but none of these things are like, this is what you have to do to taper. Um, and that's one of the things I think is really important is there is no one way to taper, right? Everyone's going to need something different and they're going to need something different based on what they've done. Um leading into your taper week and that's one of the big things right everyone with the different training philosophies if you train with a lot of volume you are going to need bigger reductions right because the nature of the beast is that that athlete is going to be a little bit more um beat up but if you're training like what you're talking about with some of your lifters where 
the training load isn't isn't crazy, right? And they feel pretty good generally. Why would you go and take away a whole bunch of the thing that's making them strong, um, and making them f- and allowing them to feel good, right? You're giving them enough recovery in the training that you're prescribing anyway. So that's kind of like, a, well, why do I need to reduce the load by a dramatic extent or the training volume by a dramatic extent? Yeah, honestly, it's it's so funny because sometimes I kind of feel like coaching, or even if you're if you're coaching yourself, is kind of a game of chicken. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where exactly what you were just saying, where if you don't have monstrous training volumes and you're going into it and you're like, you know, hey, things are going really well and feeling great. And it's like, oh, but I was told I should reduce this. And it's like, but how do you feel and how are you performing? And it's like, yeah, but and it's just like uh, it's 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 a really weird like mental uh, mental game of chicken, you know, sometimes where especially if it's something that's maybe divergent from what you're used to, it can be very difficult to just kind of trust that process. Like even, uh, and so I I put a lot of value in um, uh, athlete feedback, especially if they're quite experienced, right? So I've got a guy who's Mm -hmm. going to nationals and um, he's looking to break a couple of, of the national records and he definitely will have them in the bag, but his approach to taper is pretty unconventional. I would say, Mm. And so I sat down with them and I was like, you know, we're, we're about six, seven weeks out. And I sat down with them and I was like, okay, what have you done? That's been <clears throat> really, really good. And then we kind of had like about an hour long chat about this. And I was like, okay, so this is what you're used to. Okay, great. Here's what you seem to be responding to. So I think we can get a little bit more if we make this adjustment. Does that make sense to you? And he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in the end, it was more or less what he was doing, but just a little bit more refined. Yeah. And I mean, so far his numbers are looking really, really great, and we're 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 still a couple of weeks out. But it's it's one of those things that even to me that wouldn't be the approach that I selected for him, right? Yeah. And yeah. and that still isn't the approach that he would normally select for himself. And so it's it's kind of interesting. Like the, I find sometimes like for myself, anyways, and I, maybe I'm a little bit luckier because I do tend to have a lot of higher level athletes is I kind of, it's kind of like a cheat code. You know what I mean? You can just kind of ask them, be like, Hey, what has worked well for you in the past? And you can take away a lot of that guesswork because then you have their training history, like you were saying, and you can look at, okay, well, here's what we've been doing. Here's what's been effective. Here's some reasonable assumptions based on that. And then also Mm -hmm. here's your past experience for when you have had very successful meets, you know? And so I think that takes away a lot of the guesswork, uh, in, in a lot of cases anyways. And I think that whole, um, psychological aspects really important as well and something that's really hard to study um, yeah, but i think as confidence a, in the approach yeah like as a coach um it's something as you say you can easily take advantage of by actually talking to your athletes and knowing your athletes and the things they may have experienced or not experienced if you've got someone who's never done um a taper before or hasn't peaked before that's quite a different situation right um and that's where maybe we have to take into account because you can have someone who's really strong has never competed right um and maybe those are the lifters where you have to try and do things a bit more by the book. And maybe the, the really new lifters, you can kind of just try what is the, I guess, um, you know, either of those situations, you can probably just try what is the considered conventional way of tapering or the, or the um, research-based way of tapering with a bigger reduction in volume, maintaining intensity, and you can try that. And if it works really well, then, hey, cool, you can use that again. If the lifter starts to feel like they're still lethargic on comp day, maybe you didn't reduce the volume by enough, or maybe you need to try an intensity reduction. If the lifter gets to competition day and you know things feel unfamiliar, maybe you didn't maintain enough intensity. And those are the sorts of things that you only learn um, by doing it. And unfortunately, um, 
sometimes people are going to get it wrong <laughs> um, and you're going to have a meet and it's not going to be so good. And as a coach, that's, that sucks, right? Because you ultimately feel like you might be the reason why an athlete had a bad day. Um, and that's a pretty, pretty rubbish feeling when you, you know, finish up with the competition, someone didn't go as well as they thought they were going to. Um, and at the end of the day, you made the training decisions that were responsible for that. But if you're a good coach, that's the stuff that you can take from and analyze and be better for next time. And as you say, you can't just look at the, um, the training prescription on paper and say, oh, okay, I did this and it didn't work. I'm going to try something different. Ask the lifter, did the lifter still feel beat up? Did the lifter feel um, fresh, but like the weights, you know, weren't off well, the weight suddenly felt heavy again. Like what was the thing that the athlete felt in that situation and how did their performance go and then work backwards and then, you can come up with a new strategy for the next time that you do it. Maybe you just had too much training volume in the training plan or maybe not enough, right? So it might not even be the taper. It could be what you did before the taper. So there's so many variables. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why this area hasn't been studied a whole lot is because it's a tough thing to try and do. And it's a really tough thing to control because um, you're giving them a training stimulus before and you're also giving them a tapering stimulus. And so maybe it was the training stimulus someone gave them in the studies that affected the taper, right? So there's so many variables and you do have to be quite um, careful with just looking at the taper period of a training study. Um, you do want to look at what they actually did in training and does that look like what you would normally do? Because that's going to dictate whether or not that thing or that taper strategy they did would actually work in your situation with your lifters, right? And their strength level and all of those other things that we've talked about. Yeah, that's a really great point too. Like I, sometimes I think a lot of times people put a lot of emphasis on the taper and admittedly it is important, but at the end of the day, that's not what's going to make or break your performance is like, are you stronger? All that mm. work has already been done, you know, and you can definitely eke out more and you can, you can definitely shit the bed if you mess up the taper. But um, sometimes I think people maybe stress out about it a little bit too much yeah. and then forget about, like you said, the, the periphery. It's like, well, what happened before? What have we yeah. been doing? What's been working? And yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny too, because the, the one thing that I hate is getting a new athlete like two months out from a really important competition. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh yeah. my God, this sucks. So like that, that actually happened to me. I got, I got a, a new athlete and they're like, yeah, you know, like um, COVID, you know, was over blah, blah, blah. And like, where, where they were living anyways. And this was kind of still when we were in the thick of it. But um, anyway, so they're like, yeah, I'm two months out of a meet, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, cool. What's, what's historically worked well for you? And he's like this. I'm like, okay, cool. I built a program for him, uh, went, the competition got canceled, but we still did like a mock meet in the gym. Absolutely shit the bed. <laughs> terrible, terrible performance. And that's on me because I'm the coach, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> but then you know, and so it's like, like you said, sometimes you just do not get it right, regardless yeah. of your best intentions. And, but then six months later, so now we're six months later and he's put 200 pounds on, on his total. Yeah. Right. And he's not a huge dude. He's like, he's like 180 pounds. So, yeah. so for someone that size, that's a huge number to put on your total. And it's like, even though we completely just destroyed him for the first <laughs> little bit that was a very important learning experience yeah. to get him to where he is right now and so now we we have more or less that kind of magic mix you know at least for for the time being right yeah um, exactly and i think that's like, a real real important thing to get across um especially to people who are looking at getting coaches as well like is unless you hang around for a while 
that coach has no way to figure out you know you yeah. and how you work people um, think it's an exact science and it's, it's really not <laughs> yeah it's not like i just pick up your numbers and plug them into my magic program calculator and then it spits out you know the perfect program for you um <laughs> you can have five all the best five. <laughs> exactly i mean that's if we go back to it a five by five advanced 10 week block all good like helped me man i got some good squad gain so it's going to work for you too let's just plug that in and, and i'll put it on a pretty header and i'll send it out to you as if it's my work <laughs> yeah hashtag science yeah exactly <laughs> yeah like you have to have that time to learn the lifter and i think there's there's a lot to it eh? like uh, yeah people people seem to think and i mean i'm guilty of this like when i first um sort of found out about mike t it was like well actually i'm going to get some programming and i think i was probably that guy that 12 weeks out from the 2013 powerlifting worlds you know messages mike and says hey man can i get some training <laughs> and like i didn't have heaps of spare money at the time so i got my training you know basically was like right i'm going to pay for this block up to worlds because it's the most important and that's being a bit naive for, on my behalf right but it's exactly what you're saying like i i laugh about it and i say you know that's not the way to do it but actually we've probably all been there and we've probably all thought that the oh, coach 100%. has the magic Formula, right? <laughs> and it did go well i have to say it did go well he did well but um that's definitely not the optimal situation i'm sure he wasn't sitting there stoked that he had 12 weeks to try and prepare a guy for the best meet of his life with no <laughs> no previous working yeah. together like you know it takes time to develop that relationship and it takes time to figure things out um so yeah it is something to bear in mind if you're looking at a coach uh, please be willing to invest for the long run because that's how you're going to get your best results right as after a couple of years potentially with that with that coach um and if you're lucky maybe a shorter period of time you know maybe a year or six months things will be start to get figured out and you know you'll start to see some of that magic like you mentioned you're having with that that lifter that you're working with yeah especially when you take into consideration like just allostatic load in general and how much of that actually happens outside the gym it's like well, what does your yeah. diet look like you know is your job really stressful are you are you traveling a lot for work like are you do you have kids are you going to school like there's so much stuff that really comes into play that when you're just looking at the training and the programming it's very difficult to be like oh this is what it was it was because yeah. we did you know pin squats you know at these intensities after doing ssb squats or whatever it might be it's like well, probably just because he graduated school and now he had more time to sleep, you know, <laughs> like that, that might also be a factor as well. Um, one thing that I wanted to get your, your, uh, feedback on actually was how your perspective has changed since, mm -hmm. you know, going through school and now coaching and, and having, you know, the experience you do in, in coaching athletes, being an athlete yourself, how's your uh, perspective changed on tapering and uh, kind of super compensation for, for athletes mm -hmm. in general? Um, like in terms of general sort of training philosophy changes or training, I guess, paradigm changes. Like I think I used to place, a real heavy stock on just the training itself. Like you mentioned about those things outside the gym. Um, and I think when I was younger, I guess I kind of thought of it as a computer type thing, right? We plug in these inputs and we're going to get these outputs. And so my training partner at the time, who I still, still train with a bit, he'd tell you that he'd be at work. Um, and I was, I was, um, had a bit more free time sometimes during the day. And so he'd get these updates to our program sent through like almost every single day. Um, because I'd read something new or I'd done something else and I thought, hey, the magic's in the, in the way that I write the program, right? Um, <laughs> I think my perspective on that has changed a lot. Um, and in my 
um, thesis, I remember, I think it was the second chapter where I talked about basically adaptation to, you know, strength training and, and what are the variables that kind of optimize that. I think that and years of experience have kind of made me realize that the training itself is obviously very important, right? And we put a lot of stock in it because it, it is important, but actually probably consistency is the most important thing. Like if you're coming to the gym and you're consistently lifting relatively heavy weights, relatively heavy, uh, relatively often, and you're keeping healthy and you're recovering well, you're probably going to get stronger. Like if you do that for 10 years, chances are that when I see you 10 years later, you're going to be stronger, right? Um, whereas back then for me, a lot of it was actually on this training block right now. What can I gain in this six weeks? What can I gain in this four weeks? Um, and I think that approach is not necessarily correct. Like I think the learning side of that is really important as well. What can I learn from these four weeks? And not making so many changes so often is probably one of the big things that I've done. And obviously that comes a lot from um, the emerging strategies style, but keeping things a bit more consistent um, so that you can actually, you know, that signal from the noise type thing, right? Um, you can actually tell what that changes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you always must use an emerging strategy style. I'm not saying that at all, right? What I'm saying is if you're to learn from what you're doing, you do, do need to keep some things fairly consistent. Right, so that you can actually tell what it is that's making the difference for that lifter. Um, whereas back then, I probably changed things every week, man. Like honestly, I would have thought this exercise is going to be better or whatever, and I I tried this, or maybe I need to have a higher training frequency, and you know I might change things every every few weeks. And I don't think that's optimal. Right? I think sticking with some sort of theory or paradigm that you're utilizing now, sticking it out, actually going through with it, seeing what happens, and then making some adaptations to it the next time you might decide to run that thing. Um, so that's probably one of my biggest mindset shifts, I guess, is being willing to actually stick to something and realize that a four-week block of sticking to this thing to learn about it is going to give me a lot more information than two weeks of it and then changing because I think the latest and greatest new thing, you know, that Daniel was talking about on his podcast last week, I've got to try that. Um, and that's not, yeah, I don't think that's the best way to train, um, so don't, yeah, don't be a, don't be a program hopper. Stay here should be taken literally. <laughs> no, no, yeah, that 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 makes sense. That makes sense. So that yeah, that's probably one of the big I think biggest changes is kind of my mindset to training, and and in that I really mean like the long term thing, like being able to think about it from a long term perspective yeah. and not just have it as the short term. And some people don't have that luxury, right? Some people have world champs and national champs and all of these things that are coming up now that they do need to be potentially, you know, if you're not at your best for national champs, you don't make the world team, right? Um, so there's those sorts of constraints as well that take this out the water. I mean, I'm not super strong at the moment by any stretch of the imagination. And so for me, I have that luxury a little bit as well. Um, but I still think if you're thinking in years rather than weeks or months, um, that's really important because you can learn stuff in years and you can change stuff after you know a little bit more about yourself and what works um, rather than having to jump the gun. Yeah. It's so funny actually, because like, personal perspective is such a, a funny thing and it can be very biased. So like um, this has happened. I, I don't know why, but I think this is something that happens more with my female athletes uh, than, than my males. And probably just because they're a little bit more conservative, whereas the guys are like, I'm the greatest, you know, and they just, they, they kind of have this like machismo kind of confidence to them. But um, like, I've got a lot of very high level female athletes and there are times where we'll be training and they'll reach out and they're like, Oh, you know, I'm just kind of frustrated about my training. 
like I feel like I'm just stagnant and I'm not making progress and I don't know, I'm working really hard and I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, okay, last week you just hit a 390 pound squat, which is 40 pounds over your PR. And it's been four months of training. Like, what are you talking about? You know? And then, and, and sometimes it's a little less obvious, right? But you'll look back from last year and you're like, okay, well, this year you're doing for fives what your second attempt was at Worlds. Like, yeah. that's a big deal, yeah. you know? And, and like, when, when you look, like you were saying, when you look at, you know, within one mesocycle, let's say one mesocycle is a four-week block or whatever, sometimes that progress gets lost, kind of gets washed yeah. out a little bit. But then when you look at it over the span of, like you said, a year, two years, five years, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, like I am exponentially stronger than I was. Yeah. you know, and it's, it's very difficult to see even after a couple of weeks. Right. And so, so that, that perspective and the constant feedback and the constant, like, you know, knowing maybe it's knowing like which variables to look for based on which time span you're looking at. Yeah. You know, yeah. it can be very difficult. And that's, I think that's where a coach can be very valuable. I know that certainly is for me. Like, I know I'm so glad that I don't have to think about that stuff anymore. You know, like I give the feedback, I, I pay attention to my training, I do all that stuff, but I don't have to be, <laughs> be worried about making decisions <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. about the direction of my program, which is like, oh my God, it's such a huge relief because it's, it's such a, a stressful thing sometimes, man. And yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think one of those other things um, from what we're talking about there, like thinking of weeks, months, years, whatever it is that you're looking at, like one of the other things that I think has probably changed for me recently is historically I probably felt like I had to go to a heavier number and this might have even been with my lifters right push them to a slightly heavier number to be confident that they're getting stronger whereas nowadays like it could be uh, estimated one RM rather than having to actually push someone close to a max if that makes sense so you could do a times one at eight that might be your test for your squat each week or or not a test it's like a metric right to see how you're improving I think as soon as we chuck that word test people don't think of one at one at eight, they think of one at 10, right? Um, so, you know, if there's like a consistent training metric, but it doesn't have to be a single, right? That could be something like um, a triple at a certain RPE. That could be an AMRAP set, depending on the type of lifter that you're working with, you know? There's all these other ways that we can kind of get, um, I guess, signposts that things are heading in the right direction. Um, whereas previously, yeah, it might've been one of those things that towards the start of my lifting career, I sort of felt like I had to go, you know, truly heavy often to be confident that I was actually getting stronger. Whereas we have all these other metrics, right? And I guess that's the benefit of having a coach, as you say, as well, is that the coach will know what they're looking for with those things, right? And if you've got, say, a velocity tool, maybe the coach uses stuff like that as well. Um, It doesn't have to be a heavy single all the time, right? There's other metrics that we can look for that show actually, hang on, the strength looks like it's going in the right direction, this block. Is a five rep, you know, estimated one RM the same as a one rep? Of course not. But we're still using the same person with the same test each time. And we can kind of get some good information from that without having to ruin the whole intent of the block, right? If you are focusing on fives, right? Maybe you're actually looking at, hang on, is my RPE coming down or is my E1RM going up? Whichever way you're kind of looking at these things. Yeah. Um, those That's some really important information and a good coach will be able to use that to inform and modify or make slight changes if they're required. Um, to, to the athlete's training plan. So having those other metrics and those other sort of indicators of strength, I think is a really useful tool. Yeah. And I mean, like you literally just gave, I don't know, like what, 21 different 
possibilities because it's like, okay, a single at a seven, a single at an eight, single at a nine, a triple at an eight, triple at a seven, a triple at a nine, you know, and then fives at seven, eight or nine. And it's like, just right there, you've got like, I don't know, I guess three, three squared or whatever um, uh, metrics. And then it's like, that's for potentially one lift, like a squat, but then you get into SSB, you get to front squat, you get to whatever lifts that, you know, have a higher carryover. And I think in a lot of cases, so that's actually kind of what I like to do as well versus taking like really heavy stuff because Mm. it's almost like, I guess that depends on how you communicate it as well, because the way I communicate with my athletes is like, Hey, let's push for this and save your really heavy lifts for the platform leading up to it. And then it almost, I, I found anyways, and maybe this is just like depending on how the coach is communicating, but I've also found that doing that kind of makes them hungrier for it. Like if yeah. you kind of pull back on the leash and you're like, not yet, not yet, not yet. And this is actually a conversation I was having with, with my coach the other day. And, and then it's like, you let them go and you're like, all right, let's fucking go to town. And they just, oh man, they, they, they love it. And they just crush it because they're like, I've been waiting for this moment for so long. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's lots of different ways. One, one thing actually I did wanted to kind of get your opinion on was, um, and this is something I've been thinking about. And I have my opinion on it, but I don't know whether or not it's necessarily right. Is um, as far as like what's driving adaptations and strength, you know, mm. like whether it's absolute in, I don't necessarily want to compare it as like an either or, but maybe like <laughs> discussing like the impact that each one has on, on strength, right? So like absolute load, let's say, a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a, a single at a nine on a low bar squat versus... Mm maybe you know like a, a five reps on an ssb at at a nine or something like that you know what i mean like when, yeah. when you're trying to match up let's say intensity of effort even though the absolute yeah. load is going to be significantly different how are those things going to impact like maybe some of the neurological adaptations and the skill uh, for strength yeah like, <laughs> i saw i sort of get what you're asking i i, I think like if we look at it from a purely textbook type view, right? The most specific thing you can do to train your squat, if you're thinking of training it for a 1RM, is pure intensity, one repetition, heavy as possible, right? That's going to be the closest thing um, you can do to the competition lift. And that has a correlation of one-to-one, right? Mm-hmm. That's the exact same thing. As we move away from that, like, we might have a safety bar squat, we might have a pause squat or something else like that. Those things are similar, but they're not the same, right? So I kind of think of those as the, 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 those exercises might help to drive a change in movement that you might want to see or efficiency that you might want to see. Um, and so if I, if I had a lifter who struggles, you know, maybe they get into the hole and they struggle to get out, right? One of the things I might give them because they might not maintain position or something like that rather than me having to give them all these cues, right, all the time on that exact movement, I might give them a lift that's going to actually help to change that. So say they can't maintain position in the bottom of the hole, I'm going to make them spend some time in the bottom, right? So I'm going to give them, say, a three-count pause squat or something like that um, to try and help alter that position or get them exposure to that position where they normally lose efficiency. And then that will obviously, with those cues or a couple of cues, that should, in theory, transfer to their squat, in theory, <laughs> right? Um, and then the other thing you sort of mentioned there is about um, 
the volume. And I think this is quite an interesting one, right? Because as we say, the single is the most specific, but there's a whole lot of other adaptations that we get from doing more repetitions, right? And probably one of the most um, obvious ones of those is that training load, uh, training volume is often correlated with um, muscle size, right? Or muscle hypertrophy. And so if we don't train with volume, whether that be lots and lots of low rep sets or several, you know, higher rep sets, it's going to be a fine line because the further you go from the single, the less specific it is to the strength, but you might still be able to get in it. You, you might be able to get more volume in, in a shorter time frame, which kind of helps to mitigate some of those life factors that mean that you can't stay in the gym and do 43 singles in a session, right? Cause you're going to be there for like six hours or something like that. So that's probably the way I think of it is like, we're trying to have this balancing act between if I know the lifter needs to get a little bit more strength, I can drive that purely more neurological with a really specific stimulus, but maybe I want to try and change something with that lifters technique, which means I try a different lift to try and make that change, right. Or strengthen that area. And then I might even do that for volume. If I think it could be a musculature weakness, I might give them some more volume in that thing. So that might be higher repetition work. Um, or, you know, more sets with a, say, a five, because you're wanting to maintain a heavy but volume <laughs> approach, yeah. you know? Um, so I don't know if I've answered your question there again. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but it kind of like, yeah. it's, it's always this balancing act, like you say, right? Specificity is important, but specificity, in my opinion, I don't think being purely specific all the time is the best way to get strong. I don't think doing singles all the time is the only way that you can get strong. I think there's a benefit to bringing up that volume. Um, and this could be for a block. This could be for whatever you're thinking of. It could be part of a block. You might still have some singles in there and be doing volume, right? Those things aren't mutually exclusive. It is possible to do that. And some of the strategies you would have seen um, with the reactive training system stuff where we might have like a single out of eight and then it might drop back and do some, some fives or whatever it might be. Some eights potentially even. Like those strategies can get you some exposure to the specificity and can get you that exposure to some of that training volume and potentially some muscle growth adaptation as well. So it's kind of like, I don't know. I think we often think of these things as mutually exclusive and two things that can't be done together. Um, but I think they can. And I mean, if we look at some of, I think it's Zordos's work with the um, daily undulating periodization, like that will have strength session, hypertrophy session and power session potentially in the same week. Um, so we can do these things together. Um, it's just how we structure it, right? Yeah. No, that makes sense. And um, as far as... It is starting to rain. Sorry. I hope you can't hear that on my car, but I'm, out, I'm outside for the audience. I, I have a baby at, at home uh, and we're in a smaller house at the moment. And so the place I have to go if I'm going to be doing podcasts or meetings during the morning period is I go out to my car because it means that I can talk as loud as I want and no one, um, you know, I don't wake up the baby, which is potentially a very punishable offense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm out in the car for this and um, Daniel's just been watching me on this video. You guys won't be able to see it, but it started off with a, a slight haze as the lights outside allowed him to see the front of my face. And as the sun's come up, he can now actually see me. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, but the rain is coming, so hopefully you can't hear, hear anything. So, so it's okay, all, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the one thing that I wanted to to ask about actually was super compensation, 
Um, yeah. Because I know there's kind of like mixed opinions on this. Like some people, I tend to be of the camp that it just kind of is something that sort of naturally occurs. You don't necessarily need mm. to plan for it. But I know other people um, have a very strong appreciation for super compensation and they actively do uh, program for that. And kind of like this, what, what is this? Like, uh, I can't remember what it's called. Oh, like functional overreaching, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so I just kind of wanted to get your feedback on that, whether or not you... Um, plan for that. If if you think it's a, a viable strategy, if you think it's something that we even can really predict, or you know, basically anything else you think is relevant to that conversation. I <laughs> I think in theory it makes sense. Like that's kind of my my first thought, right? If we think back to fitness fatigue model, which I guess is an advancement of the general adaptation syndrome, right? As if we look at general adaptation syndrome, which you can think of as the um, combination of fitness and fatigue almost, almost um, is that you have a stimulus, there's a decrease in performance or, you know, have a stress, there's a decrease in someone's performance or whatever the variables they're looking at. So if we think of this as strength, I train someone, they have a decrease in their performance. Then after several days, we get the super compensation, right? And I guess the idea with that in a like training block picture would be that it's a series of workouts or a series of weeks that actually lead to you being in that suppressed state, right? Where the body isn't able to perform at its usual level. So you might actually have a decrease in performance during that period. And then the idea would be that we remove that training stress or the high training stress to allow the, the system to recover so that the athlete can actually get back above baseline and supercompensate or have an improved performance is what we're thinking of when we're saying supercompensation. So I think in theory, it does make some sense. Um, in practice myself, I'm just trying to think if I've ever actually purposefully tried to, you know, functionally overreach someone near a competition. I don't think I ever have. I, I honestly don't think I ever have. Like, I don't think I've ever done that purposefully myself. Um, so I can't say from my own personal experience whether or not it works. One of the things theoretically to me that I think would be really hard would be if two or three weeks out from an event, I'm in a overreached state where my performance has decreased psychologically, I don't think that's the best place to be. <laughs> if I've got to meet in three weeks or two weeks or four weeks, whatever it might be, if it's relatively close, you know, if it's in that time frame of weeks, and I'm not hitting numbers or I'm not getting an indication that I'm able to hit the numbers that um, I feel I want to hit. I don't think psychologically for me, that's the best place to be. Um, I mean, as you say, you know, as people might say, trust the process, you're going to super compensate. The tape is going to make you feel heaps better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Like, and I think it probably could work. I'm not saying it, it, it doesn't work. I'm just saying maybe for me psychologically, my bias and maybe why I haven't ever purposefully sought to do it is because of that, right? I'm a little bit, I, I like to have the confidence and I like my lifters to have the confidence that things are moving in the right direction before an event. And if I have properly overreached you because the definition of overreaching includes a reduction in performance, right? Just like the definition of overtraining includes a reduction in performance. Overreaching includes a reduction in performance, which means you are lifting less weight <laughs> um, than you were before you started that over that overreaching period. So 
I struggle a little bit with the concept from a performance perspective purely because of the psychological effect on the lifter, but I'm not saying it wouldn't work and it couldn't work. I think it probably could. Um, I haven't tried it, but I know that in like um, ETSU that they use that approach quite regularly um, with some of their lifters and they're really big proponents of it. And they have had some really strong lifters. So clearly it can work. I yeah, just haven't that, used it. <laughs> that, that's kind of been similar hesitation that I've had. Like I have used it a couple times, but I haven't necessarily been able to find any sort of reliable strategy for it. Yeah. For its implementation. And, and for me, that, that was kind of the thing where I was like, you know what? Let's say I do supercompensate. How much of an additional benefit are they going to get to their performance? And then what are the potential trade-offs if we mess it up? And mm. after trying it a couple times on some of my athletes, after we kind of discussed it and we're like, hey, would you be open to experimenting with this? And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. I was just like, ah, I don't know if it's necessarily worth it, like exclusively for me. Like I said, I in well, even like you said, right? Like I know a lot of people uh, do utilize that strategy and do it very effectively. Um, yeah. For me, though, I don't know if I'm confident enough to, to really use it as, as a, a main feature of my programming style. So I also kind of agree with you to an extent there as well. Like, if you're doing something and it works, like, and you're getting good results and we're getting progress over time, like, and you're already getting a bump from a taper or a peak compared to what you're getting in training, like, maybe you might get some more, but you could actually, you know, that strategy that you're using that's working it could all blow up in your face as well. So if you are going to use a functional overreaching strategy or, or some sort of, um, you know, super compensation type strategy, my suggestion would be to try it in training first um, yeah. Yeah. because you could potentially incorporate this, you know, maybe have a couple of higher volume or higher training load weeks where you know things are going to decrease and you can, that's where you've got to talk to the lifter as well, right? This is going to be hard training your performance is probably going to go down. Your numbers are probably not going to increase over this time frame. But the idea is we get this bump, you know, however many weeks after that fit, uh, that period finishes. And as long as you've communicated that and they're aware that that's part of the strategy, I think that's the key um, to, you know, as a good coach, if you just throw them more training load and volume in there, <laughs> their performance goes down, yeah. man, you're probably going to lose a client. <laughs> they're like, coach, I'm not feeling so good. Things are going down. You're like, soldier on buddy you've got this like <laughs> yeah. this is planned it's all good and they're like why are you planning for me to get weaker right and then they don't you know they they leave you coaching in the next couple of weeks <laughs> yeah um, exactly. it's definitely something that you've yeah you want to communicate well and you want to talk about um and i think in mass they've talked about a little bit eh? um monthly applications and strength, strength science strength sports yeah, yeah the last word always gets me um they've talked about overreaching a little bit and i know that they did some good videos it might have been zordos actually that did some of those videos um in there about overreaching and that was quite interesting just like hearing the potential philosophy behind it and if i remember correctly there was also a little, you know there was a lot of like be careful with it don't use it on a lifter who's not you know fairly well trained all those sorts of caveats because as soon as we're bumping volume up by crazy amounts we want to be confident that that athlete can handle it eh? like you don't want to do something like that to someone who's new and break them, so to speak. Um, yeah. Well, especially since like, you know, a major risk factor for injury is acute increases yeah. in volume load. Right. So there, there's, there's a lot of considerations to take into, into effect. Definitely. So, yeah, I mean, for, for me, it ends up kind of being one of those things where I'm like, uh, it feels like I'm flying a little too close to the sun for, for my comfort level, you know? Well, I'd, I'd be quite interested. Um, 
Tremblay, coach of Atwood. What's his first name, sorry? Oh, uh, Justin Tremblay or Jason Tremblay or something like Jason, that? Jason, Jason. Yep. Yeah. Um, I was listening to some of his stuff because if I'm going to be honest, um, I, you know, up until sort of the last year or two, I was out of the powerlifting side and I was really diving deep into weightlifting. And so when I kind of came back into powerlifting and saw this Taylor Atwood guy just carving everything up, like I started to look at some of the stuff that, (laughs) what about that? What about that national meet? eh? My goodness. I know that was (laughs) insane. So like I saw, I was like, Oh, I need to have a look at some of the stuff that, you know, what, what is, what sort of training does this guy do? And then I've had a little bit, little bit of a look at some of the strength guys stuff and some of the work that Jason Tremblay sort of talks about on the podcast and things. And it's like, I feel like he would be someone who has probably utilized the strategy because I know a really big focus of his training is volume and is manipulating the volume over the course of a training block. So like, I mean, if you're wanting to dive a bit more into it, maybe he's done some of this because um, the volume is one of the things in his system that is a real key driver um, for the strength adaptations. And he uses it, you know, manipulates that training volume as one of the key key ways of doing that. So, I mean, could be interesting to ask him about that too. If you're, if you're looking for other guests, um, I, I don't know the guy at all, <laughs> but I'm very, I'm very intrigued. Yeah. Um, yeah. by that so i mean if you got him on and talk a little bit about some of this stuff i'd be quite interested <laughs> he's actually in this city i believe um or yeah, i think I, you're right I, I know he's in alberta um yeah but yeah I, I don't know him i don't i don't really know him i, I know of him a couple of my friends have worked with him i believe or a couple of guys that i know but uh the only athlete that i really know of his is is um how am I forgetting his name? Oh, Taylor Atwood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, totally. Uh, honestly, that that's pretty much all the major questions I, I had. I feel like we went off on some really interesting tangents. So um, where can people find you? Um, just Instagram is probably the best place to go. Um, I think it's Hayden underscore RTS. I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Hayden underscore RTS. But if you search for Hayden Pritchard, um, you should find me. I'm not super active um, on there, but I do post things maybe once, once a week, if you're lucky, um, sometimes twice a week, but, um, I do try to keep active on there and, you know, I, I follow a few people and although I might not be posting heaps, I'm probably loitering on the Instagram, seeing what other people yeah. are doing. So, <laughs> exactly. um, <laughs> Making the yeah, and then obviously you can, <laughs> you can follow us, um, reactive training systems as well. Um, so that's where all my coaching and stuff is done through as reactive training systems. And obviously they have a really good channel with lots of information and, you know, uh, are experts in training powerlifters. So I've definitely got some good stuff as well. So their page is probably going to tell you more or our page, sorry, is probably going to tell you more than my page. Um, but you will get the odd nugget from my, from my Instagram. If you do feel like following me. <laughs> Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go make sure you send him a follow. Um, RTS and the website is also going to be in there as well as his Instagram. So like I said, probably check a link up to that um, ammonia inhalants article as well, because some people might be interested in that. So cool. I'll make a note of that. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so much for jumping on, dude. It was, it was awesome. uh, Awesome chatting. You too, man. Appreciate it.